0: Hello and welcome to The Blockchain and Us, where pioneers and thought leaders talk about their journey in blockchain technology, crypto assets, and the token economy. And I'm your host, Manuel Staggers. This episode has support from no official sponsor, but from my very own The Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. My guest today is Trent McConaughey. Trent is the founder of The Ocean Protocol, a decentralized data exchange protocol to unlock data for artificial intelligence. He has a PhD in engineering, where he focused on machine creativity, and he also advises Estonia, Germany, and other governments on strategies related to blockchain technology and AI. And now, to the interview. Hi, Trent, and many thanks for taking time today. Hi, i appreciate to be here. Trent, you have uh, founded two companies in the data and AI space, Ocean Protocol and BigchainDB. Let's start with Ocean first. So what's the vision for Ocean and where are you in that vision currently?
1: Yeah, so the overall vision for Ocean is to create a data economy, one that has the principles and values of the blockchain world, the, the cyberpunk movement and so on, which is about um, Equal spread of value, equal spread of power. And um, in the context of data, um, connecting the data halves with the AI halves. So basically there's these uh, AI people, data scientists, et cetera, building models, et cetera, et cetera, that unlock a lot of value. Um, and right now they're not very well connected to all these people that have data. And instead we have these giant middlemen, the, the Facebooks of the world, that um, are finding ways to get data from people who don't realize how valuable that data is. And then uh, mine that data with AI and then um, keep all the value basically for themselves and their shareholders. So that's really what Ocean is about, is to uh, manifest this new data economy um, where there's a much greater spread of
0: value and of, of power. And you mentioned already Facebook. Um, also, before we spoke, you, uh, you said you deleted your LinkedIn account. I mean, does that have to do with this as well?
1: Uh, well, overall, uh, you know, I, I was, I've been a long time Facebook user and LinkedIn user or More like, you know, people would add me as friends and I would say yes. And for the first few years of those, it was people that I had met and face to face and so on. But as time wore on, I was getting less and less value from both of those platforms. And also, I was becoming more and more aware of how I was essentially being people farmed where they're extracting value. So um, I have deleted both my Facebook and my LinkedIn account. Uh, before they do it for me, in a sense, potentially too, right? If you look at the terms of service, they say, we reserve the right to delete your account with any notice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I uh, am preempting them, perhaps. Um, I look forward to uh, the time when we have, you know, mainstream, decentralized social media. Um, Right now, we don't yet in a big way, but it's coming. So so there's partly a values thing, but partly... uh, I no longer got value from them compared to the, the disbenefits of being on either of those platforms.
0: Mm-hmm. Was there a specific event that happened, you know, that triggered that realization for you?
1: Uh, not really. It was actually more of uh, building up over time of awareness and frustration and also, um, frankly, anger um, at what these platforms have been doing. Right. Um, they talk about connecting the world and, and so on, which they have, but at the same time that people farmed, you know, it, um, and that to me is um is quite terrible. And in fact, even in the last couple of years, um they have transformed from being more of a just pure technology platform without opinions to one where they've actually become um more of a media company that actually has opinions and they arbitrarily censor um they've they which means they've essentially turned into governments. Um and that rubs very badly with me. I think we should all of us say in what gets posted where. Um, from our perspectives, and you know this is the principles of free speech, et cetera right so um, and the the great thing about the, the overall blockchain movement is that it is about being censorship resistant uh, about being permissionless about being independent of jurisdiction and um, and that's sort of a trend that's um, you know moving away from what's happening with the, the Facebooks of the world
0: with your work uh, with ocean um you outlined what you want to do, basically create a data economy. But how far along the path to, to achieving that goal are you at the moment?
1: Yeah, so roughly speaking, uh, we just released our alpha um, on scope and on time, which we're very proud of. That's very hard to do in software. Um, and so we have uh, three releases leading to the main net release uh, on Ethereum. And so, uh, uh, so the main net release is targeted for end of March um, You never know, that may change, but, um, you know, because it is hard to build and develop software on time, on scope, et cetera. But I'm very proud of the team that we've assembled. Um, You know, we've been in the space for five years now from Ascribe to Bigchain Bigchain and Ocean now together. Um, And uh, so that's roughly the timeline. Um, There's actually a much longer sort of story that led to Ocean, and maybe we can get to that at some point in the conversation too.
0: Why don't you talk about that story now?
1: Uh, Sure, so... um, I was uh, raised in a pig farm in Canada, uh, you know, and uh, I studied electrical engineering, computer science. And out of that, actually, my very first job was um, doing AI research um, simply because I'd been hacking a neural networks in free time. It was a summer job. And um, in this job, I was asked, I was given a bunch of data from radar signals. And I had to come up with a model that would automatically classify whether these signals were of birds flying by versus of, of people walking versus tanks driving by versus whatever, um, audio-radar data. And um, so how that went was I had 20,000 data points, and um, I had a mo- the model had to predict one of these 13 classes. And um, at the beginning of the summer, uh, I had an accuracy of 55%, so just over half the time it, w- it would be correct. And I worked and worked and worked over the whole summer. At the end of the summer, my accuracy was 65% hmm. and um, from that same data set. And I played with neural networks and genetic programming and a bunch of other stuff. I thought it was wonderful fun. People were paying me to, you know, do AI work, right? And that was really the start of my work as an sort of AI researcher, um, professional work, I guess. Um, And it's interesting. That's kind of how, you know, this was the mid-late 90s, and that's actually how AI was done then, right? Um, It was all about a fixed data set and, you know, um, building uh, models from that fixed data set the best you can. And, you know, most of AI was still academic then, um, so the KPI was really conference publications, and citations, and so on. And um, it kind of stayed like that, you know, without many real-world applications um, for a long time until um, the, the early-than-mid-2000s when, first of all, Microsoft, Banco, Umbrella, and then um, Norvig and others at, at Google uh, realized the unreasonable effectiveness of data where rather than um, having a fixed data set and trying to have the best algorithm for that data set, you just add more data, and not just 2x more data, but 10x, 100x, 1,000x. And they found by doing this... Um, that they could go from, you know, 55% accuracy to 65, 75, 85, 95, 99, 99 99.9. And once you're at around that threshold, you know, 95, 99, 99 99.9, you can actually deploy this stuff in the real world, right? So, um, and if you think about it, it's actually super embarrassing for an AI researcher because now, you know, all this hard work that you do inventing fancy algorithms, you don't necessarily need it. You just need way more data. And of course, way more compute and storage to manage that data and to train the models, right? Hmm. Um, But this is actually what... uh, uh, you know, Google really capitalized on this, so um, they wrote this paper about it in the mid-2000s, and from then on, it was um, their whole game has been about ga- grabbing data, getting data, getting data, getting data, and using that to build models, and then from that to sell ads, right? And that's exactly the model of Facebook, too. So, so that's basically where, you know, AI um, comes in, and I, because I've been doing AI for a long time, um, I kind of understood this, watched it develop over time. And sort of bit by bit by bit, it was sort of like frogs in a pot of water was boiling more and more and more.
0: Uh, so, sorry to interrupt there, but, but I wanted to ask you, basically what you're saying is the algorithms are the same. The only thing that's changed is there's way more data today.
1: Way more data. And then, of course, um, the memory, the compute, uh, etc., to store it, to, com- to train the models and so on. But the algorithms actually are essentially non-neural networks, which were invented in the early 60s you know, the linear neural networks of the late, uh, late 50s, perceptrons, all this, and then nonlinear on the heels of that. So the stuff hasn't changed. Um, and uh, it's just like massively, massively more. There's a few tweaks here and there that help, you know, for a 2x, etc. But, but conceptually, uh, the overall thing is the same. And um, like I said, that's slightly embarrassing. But at the same time, it means that we can have these incredible applications and like full kudos to all these work, these AI researchers were you know, they've, they've managed to tackle hard problem after hard problem after hard problem and really solve it in a practical way using, um, you know, these modern AI techniques, largely neural networks. But there have been other ones, too. I spent a lot of time with simulated evolution, for example. And, and that's starting to have some really awesome um, ex- applications, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting point, because I always thought uh, the challenge for artificial intelligence is software. But actually what you're saying, it is data and hardware.
1: Yeah, well, everyone assumed that it was software, everyone assumed that it was algorithms, right? And, you know, that's the rhetoric. Oh, we need to have better algorithms, we need to have better models of the brain, all this. Yeah, exactly. So, but in the end, it wasn't. And, you know, there's analogies from history, too, right? Um, for example, during the um, mid-1800s, um, there was a bunch of research about, uh, from people trying to record sound and then reproduce sound. So there was researchers all over the world where they were making um, mathematical models of, of the, the voice box and, and of, you know, trumpets and all of this. And then trying to say, OK, once we understand this, then we're going to be able to reproduce it. And then along came this you know, crazy guy who was um, trying to improve um, telegraphs. His name was Thomas Edison, and he'd had a pat- patent here and a patent there on telegraphs. And he, he said, you know, what if I just you know, put the stuff on some wax paper kind of almost accidentally? And then uh, so he had this wax paper recording some vibrations of what was being said. And then he kind of played it in reverse. It's like it had the sound. And like, oh wow, and you know, that simple little device that was making some scratches on wax paper, it had no understanding of voice boxes and larynxes and all this. It was super simple, right? So um, it was the simplest thing that could possibly work. Just everyone assumed that the problem was complex, right? And that's actually what's been happening in the world of AI too. Everyone has been assuming that we need fancy, fancy models, et cetera, and algorithms in order to solve the problems. In the end, we just needed more data. And now we still have the same rhetoric, right? People are like, oh yeah, for AI to wake up and stuff, who knows how to do it? We need to understand the brain and model the brain and all this. Um, Do we, right? You know, what's the simplest thing that could possibly work? What if we just have another 20 or 30 years worth of Moore's law, right? Um, And you know, some people have had models of, you know, to get to the level of processing of the human brain, where $1,000 is processing um, is the same as flops as the human brain. That's 2045, some Kurzweil calculations. Um, and, and, of course, you know, if you build a huge supercomputer beforehand, maybe you can do it 10 years or 15 years earlier, right? So, Or maybe even 20. So, so to me, it's, it's actually... Um, I'm not saying that AI might wake up, but I'm saying um, most of the rhetoric is actually approaching it wrong because there's this desire for fancy complexity that you have to design in. Uh, whereas a lot of the stuff, you just have emergent complexity. You have very, very simple rules at the very heart of the system And you have all those complexities that emerges. And by the way, that's how blockchain works too. You know, Bitcoin at the heart of Bitcoin, you have this very, very simple, elegant incentive system. It pays people if they add to the security of the network. And around all of that, you know, around those very, very simple rules, we've had the emergence of all these miners and and wallets and exchanges and the the unlocking of the whole blockchain ecosystem more broadly from a very, very simple algorithm and um, incentive scheme, right? So this is the very idea of, of complex systems Hmm. Um, so basically, that idea manifests in in you know intelligence, and manifests in blockchains, um, and it, it has practical implications for um, AI research. Hmm.
0: Very, very interesting. You know, last year actually half the year I spent interviewing people on AI. And uh, oh, wow. <laughs> not I mean, many people said data is actually the biggest challenge. Without data, you can't do any AI, but nobody said it's the same algorithms like from the '60s. So quite interesting. Why do you think people make these statements that they say, "We need to remodel the brain and understand it bottom up?" and you know, you mentioned before, they, they have a need for these fancy, these fancy algorithms, or this fancy approach to, to cracking AI. Why do you think they, they look at that and don't just have some common sense and do what you're proposing?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, um, it's not, everyone has common sense in various ways. And it's sort of like, what's the model of the world? And um, sometimes ego can be blinding. Right. So or that's the way it's always been done. Right. Um, you know, when I was doing my undergraduate design thesis, um, what I proposed to my professors, my professors told me if that could have been done, wouldn't it have been done already? <laughs> right. And I thought like I, and I thought to myself quietly like game on, let's do it. And, you know, they made a bet with the steak dinner that we, myself and my colleagues wouldn't pull it off. And we did. We did it, and we started a company from it. That was in 1999, and that was actually, you know, AI for designing computer chips. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, this is a common thing, and part of it is you also have, have to look at um, the incentive structure that people have. Um, it, so in the world of AI, it's mostly been academia for a long time, right? What is their KPI? It's conference publications. Um, and and, and, and of funding raised. They, exactly. That's exactly it. So if you think about funding, what sounds better? Okay, I need a bunch of funding to buy some, you know, you know, uh, a million data points, or I need a bunch of funding because I'm going to build new models of the brain, and I'm going to do, you know, fancy scanning, right? So, like, one thing sounds a lot better than the other when you're trying to pitch it in front of a funding committee, right? Um, you know, but, but the mundane is, is often what, what works. And perhaps, you know, because, you know, the reason we've seen the explosion of, of sort of the use of data in the last 10 or 12 years was because companies like Google could figure out how they could monetize this, right? You know, you have more data, it means you have a more accurate model, which means you can have more targeted ads, which means um, you can make more money from it, right, from ads, um, as an example, right? And, you know, the stuff that I've been doing in the world of AI, too, for designing computer chips, um, we actually had, uh, could do a bit more data, but we actually had limited um, samples simply because there was a finite amount of time an engineer would be willing to sit around to get the sort of samples from circuit simulation, et cetera. So we had uh, more limited to data to work with but then we had to do the best we could. Um, and knowing that there was limitations to the algorithms, you can't spend too much time on the modeling. We would actually just expose the models and and the uncertainty of the models. So that's, there's other ways to work around this, but going back to your question, um, it really is about sort of incentives and so on. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, there's always people who have, you know, um, it's been a rhetoric since forever, right. Um, that, uh, people are kind of usually unwilling to stand up to it. So also, by the way, you know, the other thing is, if you're in Google or Facebook or something, um, if you start talking about AI waking up, you're probably going to get fired, right? Because these are publicly (laughs) traded companies. And if some, you know, leader of AI, like Jan LeCun and Facebook, he can't talk about this because, you know, the stock price could drop by 1% or something. And then, you know, that's a billion dollars or whatever. And no one's happy, right? Whereas, so if you look at other people, though, who don't have an, like, they're not biased by their incentives that way and just talk about it. That's fine. So I, I'm not held back. So um, I don't have a bias that where I have to say, you know, I have to be careful about my citation count or anything so I can talk about it. And there's others too, you know, like Ben Gertzel with SingularityNet. Um, he, he has no qualms talking about this because he's not held back by being in a publicly traded company that has to worry about its 1% dip in stock price. Great. Yeah,
0: so. cool. I want to ask a little bit later about Singularity and, um, and, and all those theories. But first, um, I was wondering, how does artificial intelligence and blockchain technology, how do they combine?
1: Sure. Yeah. So that is really the, you know, um, what we're up to with Ocean. Um, and there's others doing you know, projects, too. Uh, and I can sort of give a quick survey if you want. But um, with Ocean, um, the summary is that AI has centralizing tendencies um, because of data because there's an incentive for com- you know, companies to gather lots and lots of data, sort of become as big as they can, get this sort of data flywheel network effect. And then, um, and then with that, build models, sell. Um, and blockchain, um, what can do is, um, if you, you, with Ocean, we've set things up such that we incentivize making data available so you can get paid um, for your data um, by the network, if you make it available, and um, others can use that more broadly. They don't have to be within your company or anything. And it sort of unlocks this data economy and an economy in the sense of there's not just one marketplace, but 10 or 100 or 1,000 marketplaces selling various types of data. You know, maybe there's uh, 10 million data sets below and one marketplace might focus on automotive driving data, right, for self-driving cars. Another one might be on, you know, weather prediction, et cetera, um, you know, selling for that. And then on top of that, those marketplaces, you have um, people doing um, and consumer level applications, you know, for building a self-driving car or whatever. Um, and then besides this, besides the marketplaces for the paid data, you have the, the commons, right, where the data is free. And um, with Ocean, one question we had asked ourselves in, in the design of Ocean was, how do we incentivize, you know, how do we get people to contribute free data? And um, because, you know, you want the contributor of the data, the creator of the data to get paid, um, yet um, you, the, no one is paying for it, uh, no, no humans or, or organizations are paying for it. So what do you do? And the answer is you get the blockchain to pay for it. Right, um, the blockchain, um, just like you know, Bitcoin network, it's paying um, the, the the miners to add it to its security via hashing. Ocean is paying the providers of data, um, Ocean tokens, um, in return for making data available. Right, so they're getting paid already, even if they're putting it straight to the commons where anyone can use it. Right, and um, and if those data providers, if they want to charge money for it, they can, in various ways. It can be fixed price, auction, auction pricing, whatever. And so that's kind of the heart of what Ocean is doing um, in terms of this AI setting. So, you know, you mentioned before, AI folks say, we need more data, we need more data. And I agree, you know, we at Ocean agree. This is, so, um, and we realized it was all about a supply side problem, not a demand side. As an AI person, you're happy to take as much data as you can. So, you know, that AI model, it, it's just like this, this giant sucking sound taking as much data as it can. It's all about, you know, supplying the data. And uh, so that's why Ocean is incentivizing for the supply side not the demand side um so that that's ocean and ocean overall um we realized along the way you know like do we want to be you know building the data availability service ourselves and of course if you look out there you've got um networks that are um providing data in sort of a provable space and time storage way like filecoin or ethereum swarm um and uh, you also have data coming from you know you could have it from behind a firewall in a corporation maybe even encrypted or you could have it in a centralized cloud like amazon s3 and we really wanted to be able to support all of these, right? As well as, you know, other sort of um, decentralized data networks. So we said, you know, in Ocean, let's just have uh, proof that the data was made available. And we don't care where it comes from. It can come from any of these, you know, fully decentralized or cloud-based, centralized or uh, on-premise. And we w- um, the, the network will reward you for it. And, uh, and at the same time, sometimes you actually want to make sure, you know, if the data needs to stay on-premise for privacy reasons, let's say it's German medical data, it can't leave the German soil. You need to do the compute on premise so we actually also said okay let's incentivize people doing compute on premise and returning the results of that and that look that looks like basically um paying for the services so overall you can think of um, ocean as sort of an ai compute pipeline um, where uh, people are getting paid for prov- providing um, services whether it's data availability services or compute services
0: mm-hmm. okay interesting yeah i want to i want to ask one thing about that yeah. because you mentioned. The amount of data, right? Data availability, but I think mm-hmm. one big part of that is um, the quality of the data. How important is that with ocean?
1: Super important. It's a uh, you know it's a um, it's critical, and um, you know if you actually look at the heart of the ocean design, we say we want to maximize the supply of relevant data, or more broadly, relevant AI data and services, right? And um, so. When we say relevant, you know, that's quality, quality data. Um, the thing, and if you look around in the world of like AI literature or big data literature, data engineering, all this, there's lots of different measures of the quality of data, right? Like, you know, what does the distribution look like and all that? And everyone, no one agrees on what the right measure is, all of that, right? And frankly, how does that measure of quality relate to value? Right. So we said, you know what? We don't know either. Um, so we're going to let the crowd decide how. The curation markets, particularly bonding curves. So how, how the block rewards of ocean work is you get block rewards when you serve up a data set, you can expect block rewards that are proportional to your stake. And that's actually proportional to the log of your stake in that data set. So let's say there's, you know, 10,000 data sets, but there's one data set that I think is really awesome and a lot of people are going to want. So I stake on that. Maybe I stake and get, um, you know, a thousand drops, like ocean, um, drops of, of a stake in that data set. And then um, you know, maybe you ask for it, and um, the, the network will randomly pick from me and all the other people that are serving up the data, but let's say it picks me, then I'm going to get paid um, ocean tokens um, as a function of um, my stake in that data set, right? Um, that's, that's the heart. So if I stake lots and lots, then I can expect to get paid more. And if I don't stake very much at all, then I don't get to expect to get paid. So you can also view it as um, the stake is my prediction of the relative popularity of that data set compared to the other data sets. So over time, um, but it's popularity sort of mixed in with uh, quality, mixed in with, you know, prediction of utility and value and all of that, right? Um, So it's, but more simply, you can think of it as, you know, there's a prediction of this value, this relevance, and then there's the actual value or relevance or popularity. And it's those two two things together that ocean, you know, the expected um, ocean rewards, block rewards. Is the multiple of those two things, the predicted and the actual.
0: And I also realize now um, that you that you answered this question that you're looking at enterprise data. And and you know, you mentioned before health data. I mean I did actually I was working at a study about statistical data from from um, governments. And, and there you do have dimensions where you can assess data quality, you know, the integrity of the source and all that kind of stuff. But with enterprise data, obviously makes no sense if the enterprise fakes their own data to, to achieve an end. I mean, it's just uh, silly.
1: Yeah, let, let's say it's super crappy data, right? And I serve it up um, and stake on it maybe a lot. Well, no one else is going to download it, right? So I'm not going to get paid. Or conversely, let's say that um, it's really actually great data, but I don't think so. I don't have money and I don't stake on it. Then I'll serve it up, but I won't get um, paid very much, right? So it's really when these two things meet—my my stake in the data and the popularity—and that's where magic happens, right? And yeah, and to be clear on the on the data, the types of data flying in, um, the data can come from enterprise, and Ocean, you know, makes it easy for enterprises to onboard because um, their data can actually stay on their servers, encrypted. It never ever needs to leave, and the compute the compute can come to them, right? So this massively changes the flows, you know. Um, in many in many companies, you know, their crown jewels is their data, you know i worked in the semi, in semiconductor industry, chip industry for many, many years. And you know they will never, ever, or very rarely let their, their topologies get out, right? These are the crown jewels um, of what they're doing. But uh, if they know that compute can come to their side and give them value, and then um, that's super, super valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the other reason there's privacy concerns, but the other thing is some data is really heavy, right? Like you've got a petabyte of data, are you gonna send that over the wire just to build a model? Um, So there's enterprise data, there's government data, there, there's, um, data from people, all these sorts of things. Um, uh, they're, they're all valuable. Um, you know, the government data, the NGOs, uh, one of the initiatives we have is working with, uh, AI Commons, which in turn is working with lots of different UN agencies, um, sort of NGO types for, for different, um, AI for good applications, you know, towards helping the UN 17 sustainable development goals. And, uh, so like that's very exciting to us because these agencies, they have a mandate to, you know, like, share what they learn. Um, they can open their data on day one, but they just don't know how to, how to extract value from it um, for, for, for the good of their people. And that's where Ocean can really come in. And so the, the vehicle for that is um, AI commons and more.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool, and data commons maybe also, open data.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, so when we say AI, com- AI commons, we mean uh, like for open data as well as uh, open AI compute. And there's quite a few other initiatives out there around um, open data and like we embrace them all. You know, we love this sort of stuff, right? And we've had longstanding relations with, you know, the folks at Internet Archive and iterating with people at Wikimedia Commons, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this is all, you know, very aligned values. And the cool thing is, if you think about those, there's been lots of initiatives, but there hasn't been a very strong incentive to make that data available or for them pooling their data. And they're always kind of asking for funding, right? But now we we can leverage these new tools in the form of blockchains and incentives to actually bring it all together. And that's exactly what we're doing.
0: Very interesting. Are you familiar with data.world by any chance?
1: Uh. I believe I've heard about it. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's, it, they're building a social network for data scientists where they can work on data problems together. And, and basically it tries to kind of standardize different sources of open data, but I don't think they have um, incentive mechanisms baked in there.
1: Yeah, for sure. So something like that, like those things like that are really great sort of service providers into Ocean, right? Um, and, and partners, right? Um, you know, another great example is OpenML, um, which uh, came out of KU Leuven, which is where I did my PhD, too. So, and they have 20,000 data sets, um, some small, some big, of varying quality. There is a rating system, but there's no incentive. So it's um, that sort of thing, though. Like, we can't wait to, to plug those in and have those as part of Ocean, right? So, you know, one of the quotes that we sometimes have flying around Ocean is, you know, 10 million data sets in your pocket, right? Uh, and um, this is part of the, the, the aim, right?
0: You also wrote a blog post a few months ago called Nature 2.0. Can you briefly describe what Nature 2.0 is?
1: Sure, my pleasure. So um, at a higher level, it's uh, a vision of the future that points to abundance um, for humans. Um, And uh, I can flesh that out, but it actually starts with the today of what we have now. And what we're building and in fact ocean is one of the crucial steps in between ocean and some other uh, you know related blockchain networks um leading us to nature 2.0 so i'll uh, unpack that now um so if you once you have um ocean and you you can build you know straight up models like classification models regression models that's sort of the starting point right that's sort of today's standard data science flows etc but you know there's lots of other um really amazing branches of ai um one of them for example is evolutionary computation or you're simulating evolution in a computer, you know, survival of the fittest. And, you know, I did a lot of work on this over the years. Um, one sub-branch of that is something called genetic programming. So imagine now if you have a computer program that is evolving on a decentralized processing substrate, right? Something like ocean, right? Where it's evolving, 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 and it's its own DAO, right? So maybe it's evolving and it ends up being able to solve a problem well, and it's its own DAO, so it can even get paid for solving that problem. Right. And uh, so you can actually have sort of on chain evolution, unstoppable evolution, even um, via genetic pro- programming or other evolutionary algorithms to be solving uh, interesting problems. And they can be narrow or they can be wide. So like an example of a narrow problem is something like an DAO, such as imagine it's, it's running along, running along and generates art, you know, using genetic programming or deep dreams or something. Um, and it generates that art. It sells that art. Maybe it spends a dollar of compute to generate it, sells it for ten dollars, um, pockets that in, in its crypto wallet and then uses that to generate 10 more pieces with that it sells 10 pieces for 10 bucks each. It makes 100 bucks. And it repeats, repeats, repeats. Before you know it, it's got a million bucks. You've got the world's first AI millionaire. Right? <laughs> That's cool. And, and and you might say, well, does it does it actually own that? And the, the fact is, you know, corporations are people, too. So you can do like the guys at the Dow did where they incorporated in um, their DAO in Switzerland mm-hmm. in Zug, Switzerland. Um, where and of course you know you're in Switzerland, so you can incorporate in Zug, have a DAO, and then you can basically remove the people essentially in a practical sense. Um, so then you just have this DAO that has personhood as a corporation. Malta has actually already made it easier, but this is the the pre the case if you will. So basically, imagine you're doing like the guys at the DAO did, um, but now instead of just a regular DAO, a dumb DAO, you can have an AI DAO where you've got AI like this this uh, arch DAO that I'm talking about, right? So now it actually literally has the rights to that art. Right? Or, or to the money that it makes. Um, and you know, Malta will make this much easier too, or has made it via its new laws, and other jurisdictions will follow. So that's a, sort of a very narrow example, but then once you start to say, okay, it's got this code for generating this art, but what if that can evolve, right? Like genetic programming style. Um, you know, just like we have, you know, Ethereum was the first sort of Turing-Complete uh, blockchain. Well, genetic programming has always been you know, the first Turing-Complete AI, right? So we, we've got Turing-Complete AI running on Turing-Complete blockchain, and that's a, an explosive combination, and so I, I'm pretty excited about that. But overall, you know, with these AI DAOs, um, from the arch dows, what else can you have? Well, think about um, Uber, right? Uber has this network of um, cars owned by the drivers, and um, Uber is moving to the self-driving cars, right? Now. Um, Uber ideally would be would want to buy all those self-driving cars to own them, right? But that's a huge capital expenditure, right? Mm-hmm. And right now, Uber has managed to stay relatively capital light. It's really just a network, right? It's spent all of its billions of investment in just building out, um, you know, the IT and and the marketing to kickstart cities, right? Um, but is it going to spend you know 10x, 100x more in order to buy these cars? Probably not, right? Now it could try to set up something where people buy the cars, the self-driving cars. But imagine instead where it goes to the Daimlers of the world and says, "Hey." Um, You know, Daimler, you know, you created Car2Go, which was basically creating your own customer for these, you know, um, this car sharing network. Um, Now we want uh, you to create, um, you know, a thousand cars to run in the Uber network in, say, Berlin, where I am. And each of those cars, it's going to be its own corporation um, as a DAO. Um, It's initially going to own, you know, have this lease um, and it's going to pay back that lease to Daimler over the next two years. Right. How's it going to pay? Well, via Uber rides, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so at the end of that, um, you basically have in two years, three years, wh- whenever however long it takes to pay these cars, each of these cars owns itself and it's fully paid off itself it's running around it's, it's a self-driving self- owning car right and um, actually, you know I myself and some friends came up with this and then we, we looked at the genealogy and there's been other people thinking about this. I, uh, Mike Hearn was talking about this back in 2011, so it's always nice to learn some like other th- people who uh, you know came up with this before, but you know, I'm very excited about this and happy to give credit. Um, but what's cool is uh, Ocean is going to make this stuff sort of this, this stuff possible, right? Um, it would have been really hard to do on Bitcoin, um, mm-hmm. near impossible. But, but Ocean is really meant for this, right? And remember, Ocean lets these other networks plug in as services, so you can have SingularityNet or Golem or Enigma or any of these guys plugging into Ocean for the things that they're good at, you know, AI-specific compute, privacy-specific compute, et cetera, et cetera. So um, on this Nature 2.0 thing, then, imagine you have um, these cars, and you also do it for self-driving trucks, of course. You also have a DAO for every road um, that people have invested in, et cetera, for every bridge, for the electric grid, all this. So we have all these things around us, and they are, um, you know, each of them are cell-owned. Um, they don't really have a sense of identity. They just are, right? And they're kind of providing this sort of next-generation infrastructure for society. for sort of It's sort of this cradle of infrastructure. And if you think about it, you know, get rid of technology, rewind, you know, a few thousand years— uh, what is nature 1.0, right? It's it's the wind at your back. It's the soil at your feet. Um, it's the, the, the lions running around that you hunt, maybe, or the deer, probably, more likely, um, and, and everything else, right? And this is sort of like, you know, each of those things, um, they're just sort of there for, um, as sort of this cradle of civilization that we can live off of, right, and, and use, and it sort of helps us to grow ourselves and us participate in that ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, nature 2.0 is adds silicon and steel, right? So um, it adds these AI DAOs um, as infrastructure that once again, it's just sort of all around us, right? It's sort of self-owning; you can't really control it, but it is actually helping to provide infrastructure for um, that ecosystem, you know, for humanity, et cetera, right? And, it, you know, it plays well with Nature 1.0, et cetera, too. And that's really what Nature 2.0 is about. And it kind of reconciles nicely with a lot of other narratives, things like, you know, energy deregulation, you know, what does that actually look like? Or, um, you know, urban mobility uh, as a service, all that, you know, fully decentralized. Um, it sort of synthesizes all of those ideas into this, you know, very one short catchphrase, Nature 2.0. Um, and there's another really, really cool thing, too, about it. Um, and that is the following. So AI, um, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing some of the applications so far, right? But also, you know, there's 3.5 million truck driver jobs in America, right? More than 1% of the population. Uh, in the next 10 years, all those are going to be gone from self-driving trucks, right? Mm. There's already been self-driving trucks in production. So you've got 3.5 million truck drivers that are gonna be pretty angry with the world, right? Maybe they'll get new jobs, but are we gonna replace those jobs that fast? Probably not. We can hope it's true, but wishing doesn't make things true, right? Um, And same thing with the taxi drivers, et cetera, Uber drivers too, right? So we're gonna have millions and millions of people, um, probably without a way to feed themselves in many cases, you know, can we expect 100%. And it's not just that, it's a bunch of other jobs too, right? Even the creative jobs, you know, creative AI, all that. Um, So AI is gonna actually like decimate so many jobs And the question is, um, and that could lead to like, you know, political revolutions or revolts, all this, it could be really like disastrous, right? But at the end of the day, what these people really want at the very least is to feed their families, right? That's what they're fighting for. So what if we had a way for them to feed their families? And of course, this leads to the idea, well, UBI, right? And normally, you know, traditionally we've always said, let's convince the governments to have UBI, right? But if you think about it, you know, blockchain actually um, can handle it very well. So for years, you know, most people in the blockchain space have realized that UBI can solve the distribution problem really well, right? You know, you have a UBI chain, it's running, 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 and anyone that signs on to that with some sort of basic proof of human, doesn't have to be perfect, but handle most spam, um, then they get the reward. So for let's say there's 100 people um, in the system and $100 come, uh, um, worth of credits comes into the system, then each person gets a dollar immediately, right? That's a very simple implementation. You don't even need an incentive scheme, which is cool. So now though, imagine we've got all these self-driving, self owning cars and trucks, and power grids, et cetera. And after, say, two years, the car is paid for itself. You know what it does with its surplus? Off to the UBI chain, right? And so over time, basically, it means that, you know, AI has taken away the jobs, but guess what? It's um, given it directly back into UBI, universal basic income, you know, that has no rules. As long as you're human, you get um, dollars, as long as you've signed up, that's it, right? And so now, um, basically, we can make this transition from, a traditional um, assumption of scarcity, a zero-sum game um, for dollars, et cetera, to one of abundance, where you have this rising tide. And at first, you know, if you get a buck a month, a dollar a month, who cares, right? But guess what? That will make a huge difference to someone in rural Africa, right? So bit by bit by bit, um, it's going to make a bigger and bigger difference to more and more people. And um, as more of these systems comes o- online, that's, uh, you know, that, that leads us to the sort of nature 2.0 vision of, um, you know, silicon and steel as this upgrade to the cradle of civilization.
0: Really fascinating. I mean, this is one of my favorite topics uh, anyway, um, because just recently I got into, into an argument with somebody, and um I was asking, how long will it take until somebody taking a bus will pay the bus driver's salary directly to the bus driver? And that other guy said, that's not, not gonna happen because you don't pay for the bus driver, you pay for yeah, the ride. Exactly. And and you just answered that question
1: yeah and a way, another way to think about it too is um you know there's sort of maslow's hierarchy of needs right and at the bottom level you've got you know the basic needs um food shelter clothing, clothing all that right so imagine you know we have a network that provides energy right um, proof of energy and you know you have all these people energy miners but instead of using electricity to get to add security like bitcoin they're actually providing energy to the network and the network pays them back right um, and there's actually a project for that Lux slash verb, hmm. um, and, and there's other energy ones too, but that one's actually incentivizing that directly. Right. Um, there's some emerging projects where you have, um, proof of move of human for, um, for cars, um, and for, for, for drones and stuff like that. I would love to see, I'm not aware of it, but you know, uh, proof of food, right. Um, you know, proof of, um, food get, going into someone's mouth or getting supplied to someone's house. Right. Um, so basically, you know, we can have a a network or two for each of these basic needs. What if we can go up the hierarchy and we can have, you know, proof of learning or, um, and so on Mm -hmm. and what this can lead to bit by bit by bit, you know, we don't just have sort of universal basic income and and universal basic sustenance. We have universal self-actualization, right? And what does that mean? Well, it's whatever you define it, right? Like I have a different idea to self-actualize myself than you might. And other people, maybe all they want to do is play Nintendo in their basement. Fine. That's okay. Right. People can do whatever they want. Um, but, uh, you know, giving the opportunity to people to do so. And, um, you know, they might say, oh, well, you know, I only get meaning from my work. Well, great. Keep doing work. You just don't have to worry about getting paid for anymore.
0: Let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. This episode has support from no official sponsor, but from my very own The Blockchain in us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. But I think while you were explaining all this, um, I thought that all of this vision, I think it will only work if it's fully decentralized? I mean, once you have just a pocket of centralization and silos, then it will fall apart.
1: Uh, well, you know, I wonder if that's true because right now you might argue that, you know, we have um, not just a pocket of centralization, we have actually the whole world decentralized except for a few pockets of decentralization. Yeah, So
0: exactly. So, so it, it, but that's why, that's why that vision sounds so fantastic currently.
1: Yeah, yeah. So overall, though, I see that over time. Um, um, it, it will end up where, um, it is possible to end up with nothing but decentralization everywhere. Uh, will, or maybe there will be pockets of centralization that's okay. But the cool thing is anyone, like if you're a human, why wouldn't you sign up for a UBI chain where you basically get uh, free money, right? Sure. And as time goes on, then money will start to matter less and less. You know, like when you watch Star Trek, do they ever talk about money? No, they just assume that everything is, is provided for. Right. Hmm. And we can get there, right? Like AI and other technology and blockchain actually really helped to make the economy far, far, far more efficient, right? Like we can get our basic needs met for for far cheaper than before, right? So, um, and, uh, you know, blockchain can help to coordinate the movement of those atoms, um, into your belly or et cetera, to feed you, to clothe you, et cetera.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you mentioned DAOs before, right? Every street will be a DAO, um, maybe a supply chain for food will be a DAO as well, but who invests in these DAOs?
1: Well, you know, um, you have to just look at it case by case right now, I think. So, um, Overall, uh, an example, you know, there's a DA, each car is a DAO, right? Each self-driving car. Who, mm-hmm. who would create that initial car? Right. Well, Daimler is incentivized because then they can create their own customers. And like I said, they already did that with Car2Go, right? They 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 created Car2Go to, to manufacture a customer for themselves, right? Um, so Daimler would be incentivized to manufacture all these cars for these self-driving car networks. Same thing with these, um, uh, you know, uh, drone networks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, if you're a smart company, you can actually create these customers for yourself, um, and then make yourself just part of the overall as a supplier to that. Right. But of course you have to set up where you're not the only supplier. You just may, might get an initial advantage because you were the first supplier so sure. you get an advantage for a year or two or three, right? Yes.
0: But if you're a company, then, then, um, you want to extract rents.
1: Uh, well that's the current company, right? Yes. But so, so I, I, what I see is that, you know, um, this is all about like organization of people, right? And mm-hmm. You know, but before we had writing, um, we th- the only way to organize people was, you know, shouting or just, like, talking with people in a small village or whatever, right? That's all you could do. Mm-hmm. And then when we had writing, you know, before the days of the printing press, but with writing, then we could write down some law and so on and um, some commandments to our armies and stuff such that we can organize in larger and larger units. And then along came the printing press, and we could um, organize even more efficiently such that, for example, we could write a constitution and then print that out for all the people to read and to post on their walls and so on, right? And each of these technologies um, allowed us to have actually, they unlocked better and better forms of governance, right? That mm-hmm. weren't possible before because the technology would have been too high friction to implement. So it increases the design space for possible ways of organizing humans or governing, right? And what I see that blockchain can do is that um, it massively unlocks a much bigger design space for organizing humans, right? And um, in, the, in the case of the corporation, um, the big thing there is like corporations, uh, to organize the people within a corporation they have one overall objective function, if you will, and that's the value of the shares. It doesn't matter if you, you know, especially if they all have options or shares in the company, right? Mm-hmm. So then you've aligned the incentives. You know, it's sort of this hierarchical design problem, but you're aligning incentives from the, the lowest employee at the bottom of the pyramid to the, to the CEO and everyone in between. And, um, and then, uh, you know, with Post Theorem, the idea is, of course, where um, you want to minimize uh, communication costs traditionally between enterprises are expensive. So having everyone within the same firm uh, allows you to um, reduce the friction of communication and and so on. But once you have blockchain, then the cost of communication is much, much lower, especially when it comes to communication of value, you know, transfer of value from, from individual A or individual B or group A to group B. And it basically then means you can start to dissolve the need for a corporation. And then the question is, um, how do existing corporations transition, right? Yeah. You know, if you're, fa- if you're Facebook, what do you do, right? Do you see that 10 years from now, you're going to just get creamed by, by these decentralized networks, you know, Akash and the like, right? So what do you do now, right? And, you know, it's classic innovator's dilemma, right? Um, what do you do? Do you, do you try to invest in them or do you try to buy them or do you stick your head in the sand? And some corporations are going to stick their head in the sand and they will get creamed. It might take a long time, but they'll be gone like Kodak, et cetera, um, notwithstanding Kodak coin. <laughs> um, um, and, uh, um, but you know, other ones that are courageous can actually do something about it. And what's cool is blockchain gives them something to do, um, specifically tokenizing. So you can tokenize Facebook or Facebook can tokenize itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by this is, um, there's a, a series of steps and at the end of the day, Facebook becomes a network. You know, the Facebook shares become a crypto token, you know, FB, right? And, um, so the the steps are the following. Uh, step one is, um, they, they, Facebook tokenizes its its security. So all the shares get converted to crypto tokens that are then shared on the crypto exchanges. And what's cool, this is actually already possible. You know, Delaware passed laws in the last couple of months to do this. Um, France as well. And other jurisdictions, you know, have done it or are coming along. So that's just happening, right? So, and that is actually kind of a no-brainer for any company because it improves the liquidity of of their shares. Um, Sure. uh, And the access too, right? That you just have more global access. So greater security tokens. Exactly, exactly. Security tokens. But you don't need to stop there, right? Um, you know that's just decentral. You know, reducing the friction in ownership. But of course, I can already buy shares in publicly traded companies, which is higher friction. Um, so what you need to do is you need to m- transform the overall organization from a, a, cor- a centrally controlled corporation to um, a network where it's rewarding based on value added to the network, right? Just like Bitcoin, it rewards for um, value added in the form of security via hashes. Ocean, in terms of you know data added, etc. So. So with, with Facebook, um, it's really a bleached Facebook division for starters. So, you know, um, and same thing with Amazon, et cetera. So Facebook has, you know, uh, Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and all of these, mm-hmm. and every single one would be its own tokenized network, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so for, uh, for say, Messenger, right? Um, it might be very simple. It might be uh, if you run a node um, that uh, you're incentivized to run a node because maybe it does some security and you get rewarded for minimizing the latency, passing a message along, right? And it could be as simple as that, maybe, but there's lots of possible token designs. And there is for, for each of these things. So let's say that Facebook decides, okay, we're going to tokenize Messenger. They do it like I described or some other thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then they just launch that network, right? And, uh, maybe they give, um, maybe they say with this network, 50% of the tokens go proportionally pro rata to the shareholders. And the other 50% go to the users of Messenger. Um, people who have been using Messenger and you get tokens pro, um, proportionally to how much you've used it, or maybe just, you know, equally among all the users, right? So that's one way. Uh, and you do that then. Yeah, and you do that for each service. And then what What do you do with Facebook, the company itself? Well, remember, Facebook, the company, then it, it has no products left. So, um, but the people, if you do it right, you know how Dash has um, on-chain governance where there's bounties. It prints out some of its money where people can make proposals to improve Dash in certain ways. Uh, and there's other ones like that too, but Dash is a nice example. Um, well, now Facebook can be doing the same thing with these networks. So an engineer, groups of engineers that previously worked for Facebook, can be providing services um, to improve uh, the code, et cetera, of each of these networks, right? And as well, you know, uh, Facebook itself runs its own infrastructure right now. That's already taken care of because that's built into the, into the incentives. So the summary is: the incentives can incentivize not only the the running of the infrastructure and incentives around growing that, but also the improving of the code, et cetera, like dash style, et cetera. So, um, and then basically, Facebook itself has melted into the network. It's melted into the community, right? <laughs> and that, to me, is a really, really like hopeful vision. And I'm I hope it happens, right? Um, And I think you know, maybe these networks will merge or play well with each other. You know, Facebook with Akasha, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Uh, We will see. Hmm. Interesting. Very fascinating. I mean, of course, I'd also love to see this happen. But have you spoken to anyone at Facebook about this?
1: I'm not sure if I can say more there
0: (laughs) (laughs) because what you mentioned there i mean there's just so i I mean i love these visions and i'm i'm all for them but there's just so many so many arguments you can make against a company like facebook wanting to see that happen in reality
1: yeah so so maybe i can give a more uh, broad answer right so at a higher level, right? Put yourself in the shoes of Zuckerberg, right? Sure. He's got, he's got, you know, he started out, you know, just hacking away, merrily building this thing. And his friends joined in and their friends and their friends. And mm-hmm. he, he was just on this rocket ship for more than a decade, right? Kind of amazing. And at first, it was just, you know, playing and hacking. And then over time, the vision coalesced into connecting people, et cetera. Um, and, you know, he, the, Facebook has grown in a lot of ways, you know, and Zuck himself and so on. But at the same time, now they've, they've arrived at a place in the last few years where it's like, oh, shit, we're people farming. We didn't mean that. And, you know, I've hung out at Facebook a lot, right? I have friends who are early employees, all that. So hanging out at Facebook HQ, um, and they're good people. Like, they mean well, all that. But, like, something happened very slowly. And then there was clear problems here and there, such as, oh, crap, we helped enable the, the, the hacking of the U.S. election, right? Because of Russia, we have Trump as a, lead, as a president. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> right. And Facebook was the vehicle for it. Oh, crap. Right. And, it's, and, and that's not the only problem. Like, there's lots of examples like that that are like, this isn't what we meant. Right. What have we what have we wrought? Right. So um, and then there's, you know, there, I, I talked about this transition from being a neutral um, platform to sort of a media company. Did they really want to be censors? Did they really want to be kings like this? Uh, Well, they are, whether they wanted to or not. And that is a very uncomfortable position to be, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it is an extreme amount of power. Like, governments rightly are threatened by them. They have, you know, two billion citizens and more money than most countries, right? So, um, so, like, is that, and overall, is that, so uh, if you put yourself in the shoes of Zuckerberg, these are really uncomfortable questions. And if you look at the interviews that he's had, um, he stumbles through a lot of things uh, in a very rough way. He, he tries his best, but he's in a really tough position. Mm-hmm. But what I see is that by tokenizing, um, it's actually a, a very clean like clean way to address innovators' dilemma. Well, potentially adding a lot more shareholder value, right? Well, who knows? We don't know. Um, you know, we, We've seen examples of tokenizing, but only smaller scale, right? Numerize is one example, partly as well as Kick, right? Um, And and telegrams happening bit by bit. Um, But, but, you know, we haven't seen bigger, bigger ones yet. Um, And to me, you know, the ones that figure it out and do a good job of it can, you know, repeat that, repeat that, repeat that. And, um, you know, imagine five years from now, 15 years from now, every single Fortune 500 company is tokenized or maybe half of them they are and the other ones are dead because the upstarts killed them.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how likely is it? I mean, you mentioned Facebook. And also, I mean, there was um, recently there was this petition at Google, right, where some of the engineers petitioned against the China initiatives of of Google. And so basically, that's, um, that's, you know, maybe a start where, where the people actually building the thing say, wait a minute, that's not what we want to build even though it may make money for some people it's not what we want to be part of but how likely do you think that these big current tech companies apple google um, amazon facebook twitter will be around in five to ten years
1: uh you know 10 or 15 years from now i i don't anyone that is making its margins and raw value on data like basically this data arbitrage um, you know realizing they know the value of the data much more than their users do and their users are giving it up. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that they are totally exposed that way and not to mention on data liability with things like GDPR and all that, or being honeypots or being hacked, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, um, you know, it's actually, uh, uh, maybe they'll be around, but there's a good chance they will be, um, either attacked from below or attacked by regulators or broken up and so on. Right. Like Facebook is at risk of getting broken up, Google, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Or at least alphabet. So now here's another cool example though. And maybe this is a better one. Um, on, you know, will Facebook actually do this? There's a country that's doing this, Estonia. Estonia, you know, it's an amazing country, right? They, um, after the, the wall came down, Estonia became its own nation again, rather than part of the USSR, mm-hmm. and um, went digital immediately, actually. So, um, uh, you know, and they, there's sort of an A-B test with them in Latvia next door, where Latvia didn't go digital. And, you know, fast forward um, 20 plus years, and uh, Estonia is the sort of like model of innovation and, and the future and, they have, um, you know, they've had e-residency for five years. Um, they've had citizenship. They have with 30 government services that are all electronic, including health, etc. And it's just this really amazing model, you know. If you're in the government and you want to pass a bill, um, you actually submit that bill to um, yourself and all of your colleagues in the government and, and the prime minister, etc. And everyone signs it asynchronously with their digital signature. It doesn't have to pass from one house to the next to the next and take two months. It just happens within a day. And so, um, and it was actually, by the way, the, the reason they could do e-residency was, you um, they managed to ship it, the, the first version super fast, super cheap. I think they took their existing citizen identity card, they scoped it down, and they just rolled it out for a budget of less than €100,000, I believe. And, um, <laughs> wow. you know, and that took off, and now there's more than 30,000 e-residents. And this, if you think about it, is um, super courageous because they um, they are giving rights that only normally go to citizens, and they're giving some of those rights to anyone in the world You know, to start a, to start a company in Estonia, therefore a European country, um, and that they, and it makes it easy to do business with the rest of the world um, as, as a you know government vetted source of identity. All of this, right? So and you know I, I was an advisor to the Estonia e-residency program. Got to know Casper, who was running it, a visionary guy, right? And and the team around him just incredible. And so what they started to iterate towards was realizing, okay, we've done e-residency. Um, we we get blockchain. They really truly do. They're really visionaries. It's really awesome. And they said, well, what if we tokenized Estonia itself? What does that look like, right? And, like, this is the government itself asking this question, right? Interesting. uh, Yeah, and they said, you know, and uh, Casper put out a blog post about, they called it Estcoin. And, you know, they they kept it pretty vague on purpose because they wanted to see feedback. And they got lots. And it was uh, generally very, very positive, saying, we'd love to learn more. Tell us more. Tell us more. And so, um, and the government has kept proceeding on that, right, towards that. So so Estonia is on this trajectory to tokenize the country, right? So, like... You know, what I could tell Zuck, like, Zuck, look, a country is tokenizing. Surely Facebook can.
0: Yeah, right. right. Well, only that maybe one argument against that would be that country has a mandate to care for its citizens, while Facebook cares for those who hold the most shares, right? Um, So maybe I'd like to speak a little bit about your work as a token engineer. Um, Just roughly, I'm, I'm wondering, how does the process of token engineering, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the backstory of this is um, I'm trained as an engineer, electrical engineer out of, you know, University of Saskatchewan, Canada um, in the mid 90s. Right. And a very rigorous training training. Right. Like, you know, tons of math classes, tons of like really hardcore analytics, all this. And then, you know, I spent my career building tools for engineers. Right. So like lots of like uh, heavy duty engineering methodology. I have a Ph.D. in engineering, all this. Right. So I sort of lived and breathed the world of engineer for many years, as well as sort of had another foot in the sort of A.I. researcher door and stuff. Uh, or our side and um and you know even in the days of, as an undergrad engineer um we we had it drilled into us uh the importance of responsibility of the things that you design the things that you create um you know there's classes on engineering ethics um that we would take and you know we would watch bridge, um, videos of like the Tacoma Narrows Bridge collapsing and why this could have been prevented if the engineers had been more responsible right and so then and then you know if you think about the blockchain world. blockchain We have rhetoric where, oh, I'm just going to throw some code out there and I'm going to see what happens and code is law and it doesn't matter and ethics don't matter. It's all about the code. I'm like, no, it's not like, um, you know, AI and blockchain, especially are two technologies where every single piece of code you write, every single line is extremely ethically infused, Right. And you need to take responsibility for that, um, or you should. I mean, at least this is my, my, my view. I never. I, it's, it's my view. People can choose whatever views they want. But overall, if we're creating infrastructure for civilization, um, at least to me, we ought to be thoughtful about it, right? Um, people can choose however they want to do things. But my kind of goal is towards this you know, idea of Nature 2.0, as opposed to sort of like one of many dystopian scenarios, right? So, um, and so I have sort of like... Part of the reason that i paint pictures like nature 2.0 is um saying okay here's what we can head towards now how do we get there and how do we minimize the chances of screwing it up right right in one of many ways mm-hmm. so then um you know this was sort of the backdrop uh, as an engineer and um fast forward to when we started working on designing the actual dynamics of the ocean token like and uh, uh, at first we were you know whiteboarding a lot right this was in um april may june last year 2017 and um we were whiteboarding you know one design then another design and we are looking at pricing models for data markets and and all of this, and we found ourselves flailing at first um, on the incentive scheme, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we said, you know what, um, tokenized ecosystems are a lot like optimization algorithms um, or design of optimization algorithms, where you have to um, lay- give the specifications, as in um, the goals, as in the obje- two things, the objectives, the things you want to maximize, minimize, and the constraints, the things you have to meet, and and, and then you have a design space that the sort of agents run around in and try to um, do better against those objectives and constraints. So that's the first thing, and that's essentially the problem definition, right? That's the problem definition for optimization, but also um, that can be the problem definition for a tokenized ecosystem where the agents are essentially the miners or any other participants that that, um, participate uh, with stake, etc. And then the objective function is actually the block reward function. So so that's the first part. The second part is once you have these three things, um, then you say, What are some you know, possible designs? And you start with the simplest thing that could possibly work. And that usually is actually no tokens at all, no blockchains at all. Like, can I run just an old school database on this and will it solve my problem? And if it does, then you shouldn't use a blockchain, right? Um, Because you've already solved your problem. Um, And then the next thing you should try is um, a blockchain without um, tokens. Maybe one that acts like a database, like super easy. And BigchainDB is exactly that, right? Um, it, It doesn't have its own incentives. It's not meant to um and if that doesn't work then you start adding in um building blocks from the corpus of, blo- uh, of blockchain building blocks uh according to what you might think work right so a common one is tcrs token created registries lists um or maybe a bonding curves um but maybe you know you're just going to do a governance scheme so just have a very simple governance um uh, plugin you know maybe using something from aragon or or otherwise right or or maybe you have uh or or and there's a lot of different building blocks around different things you know um uh, third-party arbitration um, and governance and curation, um, proof of, and and at the heart of things, you need to prove that something was happening, right? Proof of work of some form, whether it's training a neural network or adding security and, in the form of hashes. So, and basically what you do is you try a building block. If it works, great, you stop. Or if, if it doesn't, then you try something else. And you try to basically keep iterating, iterating um, with you know minimal add to complexity until you arrive at something that meets your objectives and constraints. And usually as you're going along, you actually end up adding a few more constraints and maybe even changing the objective, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and only if needed should you actually come up with a new design, a building block. Why? Because it's actually a huge amount of complexity if you do that, and you're doing something that's untested and so on. And sometimes you have to, but hopefully you don't. So in the case of Ocean, actually, we tried a whole bunch of um, schemes. In the end, we, ad- we added a new building block, but it was the minimum possible riff on an existing one. So um, there's traditional bonding curves. Um, that you know, Simon Deleuviere did a lot of work on with um, curation work et cetera. and we said let's add proofs to that, where you basically um, can get rewarded as a function of your you know your stake in the bonding curve um, times you know work or not right. Mm-hmm. And I talked about that earlier. So that's basically what we arrived at, and we decided you know this was a really useful process um, that we went through, and we saw how like the clouds really cleared, the clouds parted, when we um, decided to follow this rigorous methodology because we knew when we were done the design. And as soon as we were done with the design, we just wrote it down on a white paper, and that took some time too. But at least we had a design that we felt good about. So we wrote about it um, in a series of three blog posts. The main title being um, uh, um, "Towards a Practice of Token Engineering," and it really resonated well with the community. So you know, we uh, I gave some talks about it and other colleagues, and now um, and we decided, you know, let's help to kickstart a community. And there were some other like-minded folks around us people like Michael Zargum and Dimitri DeJong and others. And um, so this community has actually formed very quickly, and it's it's a really awesome community, and we're all teaching each other a lot. And that's really what it's all about. So there's already about 10 meetups throughout the world. There's been about three or four sort of global gatherings. There's a lot more coming along. So it's a really exciting thing, and basically it's, You know, we're at the level where now that, you know, Ethereum has matured enough, then we can start thinking a lot more about rigorous design on top of that. And that's really what token engineering is about.
0: I told you before, I spoke recently with Anish Mohammed about uh, token engineering. And he, one of the things he said that was quite interesting was that he said, globally, this is such a small group of people understanding all the things that matter in this field, that there's actually a little bit of of an imbalance happening there. It's very, very left-brained. It's very male-dominated. So how important do you think in this work, you know, in software engineering, token engineering and AI, how important do you think are the more right brain skills like creativity?
1: Well, I've always been a big believer that you need left brain and right brain and you need to balance them. And I think, you know, men and women have both sides, you know, everyone has a full brain, right? So you just have to get good at using both sides. So um, in that sense, uh, I think it's like super important back and forth to, to, you know, hone and practice um, skills across the board, right? Mm -hmm. And... um, I, I've written about this where I think actually the people that are the most successful in the field tend to be the polymaths who are actually um, experts at several fields, but also good at building bridges between them. and and you know, figuring out how like um to connect long-term visions with the day-to-day um, uh, practice of execution, right? and and um, and that's actually, you know, in, uh, coincident, well, interestingly, and uh, probably um, not coincidentally. That's what VCs look for in investing in companies, too. They want vision and execution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and vision actually can... Well, both actually have a lot of creativity involved as well as skill, right? Like, you, to have vision, you have to have creativity. And to be able to execute well, you have to creatively explore your building blocks and so on. So, mm-hmm. um, And, you know, the ethics side is super, super important. And I think that hasn't been emphasized as much as it could have in the space. And, um, you know, I think uh, that's a practice where more... Many of us have been talking about it, and there's, there's practice towards there, too. One other thing about uh, Anish, too, he's he's you know a true polymath, amazing person, and he actually also had had a nice hand in helping us with uh, the token engineering of Ocean. So, you know, full kudos to Anish. We we go to our way to like say thank you to everyone, and yeah, um, there's there's a lot of people who contributed to to the design of Ocean Protocol. It's really a community effort that way, and I'm thankful, you know, for for sort of having been in the community several years that I could actually reach out to my friends, the experts, and get feedback, and that really helped.
0: Yeah, yeah, cool. How do you, and maybe also your friends and your, your peers in that group, how do you guys train creativity?
1: Um, I mean, I don't know if the blockchain people are experts at that per se. It's um, it, Overall, I do have philosophy about creativity. Um, a lot of people think that creativity is just this innate thing, and you either have it or you don't. I think that's a, a load of BS. Um, I, I, I see that uh, actually in the late 50s, um, there was a movement around um, how how to get better at being creative. And there was a lot of books written uh, on it. Um, One of my favorite books of all time is called Applied Creativity. And it actually gives a bunch of tools about um, different tactics and techniques um, to to generate ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, if you're trying to create a startup, um, maybe you make a list of underexploited technologies and you make another list of interesting problems. And then you say, okay, for this first underexploited technology, how can we use this on this first interesting problem on the second, on the third, on the fourth, and you go through that on the sort of N times M combinations and you see what pops out. And maybe, you know, one or two or three will pop out um, from the top of that. And you might think, you know, at the end, it'll look like this amazing idea, but it's just because you went through this in sort of a rigorous fashion. And that's just one example of a creativity tactic. But there are dozens, right? And you can actually get better at it over time. Um, So I think, you know, um, maybe some people are naturally a bit better at creativity than others, but there's a lot where you can improve that skill. Mm -hmm. So um, that's all.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's extremely important, you know, and it's very easy to forget that it's also actually very, very valuable in the space. Um, Trent, you're currently living in Berlin. And um, how important is being in Berlin at this point of time for you?
1: Uh, Well, maybe like overall, I would say um, for the space, I'm really happy that blockchain is probably the world's first global tech ecosystem, right? Um, There's no single center of gravity in the whole world for blockchain, right? Um, and that wasn't the case for Web 2 or Web 1 or any of that, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, uh, you know, web is, and chips, um, Silicon Valley largely, or automotive was Detroit. Now we've got it a bit more spread, et cetera. And blockchain really there is, you know, 10 or 20 cities. That's probably this power law distribution of sort of relative impact. Um, but uh, I really love Berlin. I've been here uh, many years now. And um, part of the reason I came here and part of the reason I stayed was it has this um, bias towards society, and hacking, like, um, um, so it's really about impact via creative technology, all that. You know, I came to Berlin, um, when I first came to Berlin, one of the first things I did was go to Room 77, and that was the very first bricks and mortar place in the world that took Bitcoin for anything. And not only did they take it for anything, they took it for beer, so I was very happy. <laughs> And, you know, I went to this uh, Bitcoin meetup and everyone around me was talking about Bitcoin and blockchain. And I'm like, wow, you know, I'm home. <laughs> and, um, and, and it was not just about building, but it was also like about society. Right. And, and I, as I learned more about Berlin and also knowing the history, um, you know, there's uh, actually a long history of Berlin for sort of um, obviously tolerance, but also um, hacking, hacker culture, all that. Right. C-base is one of the first hackerspaces in the world, started in the early 90s. Um, there's the CCC conference, all these sorts of things. You know, there's quite a few projects that are um, quite prominent. Um, you know, a lot of the Ethereum core devs are here. Uh, there's Ocean and BigchainDB, our projects. Uh, there's Parity, there, there's Cosmos, there's Gnosis, mm-hmm. there's Lisk, and many more, right? And so, um, and, and the cool thing is, um, the community is really supportive of each other, right? Um, and I think that's, you know, a natural outcome of um, blockchain, especially if it's not about, you know, if you have this assumption of positive sum game versus zero sum. Um, and here in Berlin, it is like that. And um, I'm really happy. I hope it stays that way. I think it will. We will see, right? Um, and I would say it's a bit different. Um, you know, a lot of my friends in Silicon Valley um, who are longtime entrepreneurs and builders, they often ask me like, uh, questions about, like, well, what's the business model, right? Yeah. Um, how, do, how, do, how, how do we make money from this, right? <laughs> I'm like, um, that's not the point, right? The point is, like, how do we make an impact to society? And then how do we keep feeding ourselves to do so, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and we know, like, it, you know if, you, if you build it and if you're patient and if you really go out of your way, the cool thing is um, value can accrue. But um, you can't aim for it directly, right? And um, and sometimes you have to be patient. You know, some projects are taken off. You know, I'm, you know, we we watched uh, Ethereum grow up and blow up in, that, in a great way, and I'm super happy about that, right? In, a, uh, in the sense of a lot of people are, you know, don't have to worry about money anymore in a great way, and a lot of early Bitcoin hodlers that were at that, those meetups and stuff, it's like that too, and that's that's wonderful, right? I I can't think of better groups to. Um, to not have to worry about money anymore and instead focus on biddling, right?
0: I mean, there's this thing, right? And the people that surround you, that's how you become later later down the road. And uh, it's great that, that you found a good place like Berlin. I definitely love the, to be in Berlin and I think it's always fun there.
1: Yeah, I should, I should mention too, by the way, I'm, I'm not anti-Silicon Valley. I have many friends there, like amazing thinkers, all that. It's, it's just sort of the, the approach to, to money and growth. Like, you know, the idea of growth at all costs, nothing else matters. It's like, well, no, like, how about, like, impact on society and helping your friend and growing as a person, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I once said, you know, Silicon Valley is growth at all costs and he, Berlin is growth as humans. And that's probably a good summary.
0: Yeah, cool. Trent, do you have any role models?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, probably my very first one that I, you know, always refer to as Ben Franklin. Um, he, you know, he uh, was initially a successful entrepreneur where he, you know, had this printing press in Philadelphia. And in order to do well with printing press, he actually wrote a lot, you know, writing um, poor Richard's almanac, you know. Mm-hmm. coming up with quotes like, an apple a day, um, to keep the doctor away, right? And, uh, you know, he just did that. Um, but then he was very successful at that. And so he was able to um, not worry as much about um, m- feeding himself anymore. So then he could focus on science. And he, you know, connected electricity with lightning uh, via the famous uh, kite experiment. And uh, that was actually the, um, basically the beginning of electricity as a science, right? Um, and sort of, and Ben Franklin actually um, iterated with the Royal Society in London and worked a lot with, um, you know, across the Atlantic back and forth to sort of improve the practice of science. And that was kind of wonderful. And um, if that wasn't enough, so he we went from um, uh, entrepreneur and writer to, to scientist and thinker. And in the twilight of his career, if, if that wasn't enough, he co-invented the United States of America. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, wow. And, and, you know, there was two battles in the, uh, you know, after they declared independence, like he wrote, he was the only person who had a hand in all three founding documents, right? Hmm. The Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights. He was the only person. And, you know, there was also John Adams and Jefferson and these guys, and they're all amazing. Um, but Franklin, you know, he, he was, had a hand in them. And did you know London, or sorry, the UK, could only send half its ships across to America to fight? Why? Because they had to keep the other half around to defend against France. Hmm. Why? Why? Because Franklin was ruffling the feathers of France, so that France w- would um, cause consternation to the UK. So basically, Franklin literally fought half the war for the USA. You know, if if the UK was able to send uh, send all of its ships, you know, the USA might have won. So uh, this to me is really wonderful. And it wasn't just Franklin, you know, others were around too, like John Adams' son, like John Adams, Quincy Adams. But uh, overall, it, really, that's a wonderful role model. Someone who, you know, jumped across multiple fields, managed to, you know, he's sort of the, the penultimate example of self-actualization. And, you know, I really aspire to be like that. He wasn't yeah. a perfect man either. He had faults, but overall, a uh, really wonderful uh, inspiration.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. And if he defeated the British.
1: Oh, uh, well, no, no, not single-handedly. Like, I mean, obviously, the, like Washington and all the troops around, um, but... It was really a two-pronged approach. And, um, you know, it's kind of amazing that just a handful of people, you know, especially especially Franklin and John Quincy Adams, really made a huge difference on the French-British side.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, do you see like a similar battle going on, you know, between maybe the ideology of what blockchain can do and what's currently happening with these data silos and people farming?
1: Uh, well, there are going to be battles. Some of them are, will be probably bloody. I hope not. Um. This is why I'm always a build it up sort of person rather than saying, hey, you know, Facebook, let's fight. I'd rather I, I, I want to say, hey, Zuck, let's tokenize that we can help you. Right. <laughs> and to me, that's actually much more healthy. You know, let's mm-hmm. let's build the future together. Right. Um, if someone wants to stay in their sort of rent extracting regime and fight and fight and some will, um, then game one, let's fight
0: all right cool well trent i really enjoyed this conversation and um i actually realized i have so many more questions that i wanted to ask also stuff about um, estonia and e-residency but uh, maybe we can revisit this in a future conversation and um yeah again i really appreciate your thoughts and insight and many thanks for making time today my pleasure thank you thanks so much for joining us today more info on our guests and our sponsors is in the show notes of this episode and on the podcast website theblockchainandus.com to help people find this podcast it's important that you download subscribe and give it a top rating and review on itunes or on the podcast platform of your choice i'm manuel staggers and i thank you very much for listening